another episode of the Mike Janella Show. I'm your host, Mike. Obviously, this is my 55th podcast episode. Hopefully, won't be my last. This week, we're joining someone who I've known for all of about three minutes and six seconds or so. We were just put in touch, but once I heard about this woman and what she's done, I knew through a mutual friend that I had to get her on the show. She is an artist at large, but she is the writer and artist creator of The Dreamer, a graphic novel series that's also online in webcomic format, and I've never talked to someone who's actually created their own comic book before. So I finally get to do it. Welcome to the show, Laura Innes. What's up? Hi. Thank you. That was a warm welcome. Uh, we try and keep it warm around here. This is uh, <laughs> this is a fun, safe space. Uh, no, Laura, as I mentioned, we have just been put in touch by actually last week's podcast guest, Scott Knowlton, who was uh, my old boss and knew you. And he's like, hey, if you're talking to these kind of people for your show, I've got the perfect person for you. And he sent me your info and he was right. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah, I mean, Scott and I just met in person for the first time a couple of weeks ago, so that was kind of fun. Wow. Um, we act, did he tell you how how we met? Uh, he told me off air, but I don't think he mentioned it on the podcast. So if you want to share that story for those of uh, you listening that may know both Laura and or Scott and or me, uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> sure. He um, well, his name is Scott Knowlton, and uh, he found me because I'm actually writing, I write about American history, about the Revolutionary War, and I'm writing about his great, 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 great uncle who fought in the Revolutionary War. And uh, he found me online and told me that his grandfather had Thomas Knowlton's sword in his attic, or his father had Thomas Knowlton's sword in his attic. So after that, I knew I had to be his friend. So <laughs> You were in, yeah. When it, you don't have too many Revolutionary War swords just hanging around, so that's kind no, of a, a no. nice giveaway. <laughs> And that's the kind of thing you can't find in a museum. So uh, that was really fun that he got in touch with me. And I've actually met a lot of um, Thomas Knowlton and his brother Daniel, who Scott is descended from. They both fought in the Revolutionary War. So I've met a lot of their descendants through writing about their ancestor, which is always kind of fun to meet people so who crazy. carry their uh, genes. <laughs> yeah, but it's so cool, though. And we'll get to that because that's a lot of what you write in this comic as well and so much of what you do just in general uh, professionally. So we'll get to that. But, uh, Laura, before we get too far down that road, I do start every episode the same way, no matter the guests, and right. it's on a good foot. And I like to ask everybody, what's the best thing, Laura, that's happened to you in life in the last week? Oh, okay. Well, well, this is the best thing for me. Um, I've been having problems. I've been seeing a chiropractor uh, because I work too much. And <laughs> um, it's really weird. He, he adjusts my wrists and elbows, which if you've never had that done before, that's sort of a strange sensation. Huh. And I've been going for several months and he's just been um, very hard on me. He keeps telling me that I, he wants to treat me like a trauma patient, but he can't because like if you were in a car accident, he would just say, don't get in another car accident, right. but <laughs> I sit down and draw all day, every day. I just keep re in his, in his words, I keep re-injuring myself. So anyways, we've been working on it and icing it and stretching it, whatever. And when I went in this week, he was like, it feels so much better. It's like, it's actually, it's healing. It's letting go. And it's not one big knot anymore. And then he admitted that he wasn't actually sure he could help me. So that was really encouraging to know that I will get to do my career for a lot longer than, you know, if I my arms crap out on me because my tendons. <laughs> well, that's great news. I, people don't really think about that. Yeah, if you're an artist, you can get, I guess, like comic book elbow or artist wrist. Yep. And that's not something we think about all the time. 
No. And you know, it would kind of hurt when I had really bad deadlines and I would just stack it up to, oh, my fingers are going numb because I had a crazy deadline and then work subsides and then it kind of goes back to normal. But that cycle has been happening for several years. So apparently I was just on the edge of really injuring myself badly. So that was great news that I went in the nick of time and it's going to be reversible. So all that hard work is paying off. Ah, That's great news. So congratulations on that because I'm I'm happy (laughs) to hear that for you. Um, So tell us about The Dreamer. You've been doing this for 10 years almost right now. So uh, the just plot, the structure, the release formats. I mentioned it's both a webcomic and a graphic novel. Uh, just give us sort of the, not the elevator pitch, but I guess a long elevator ride pitch uh, about <laughs> what, what The Dreamer is. Sure. Um, I actually launched it on the 4th of July of 2007. So we actually are right right up on the 10-year anniversary. And uh, it's, it's a webcomic that I release a page at a time, two pages a week on Wednesday and Friday. So it's a very long way to tell a story. Um, <clears throat> but I kind of got on it earlier when there was less internet content. I think people are more used to it serialized storytelling now, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, than they were in 2007. But uh, there were a lot of people back then who were telling stories that didn't fit in the wheelhouse of the traditional comic publishers. And with the internet being young and um, free, they just decided to start telling their own stories online. So when I started this story, it's about a high school girl, and she lives in Boston, and one night when she falls asleep, she wakes up and she's back in the Revolutionary War. And she kind of thinks, that, well, that was weird. That was sort of a fun dream. And the next night when she falls asleep, it happens again. And then it happens again. And so she gets swept up every night in her dreams in the midst of the American Revolution. And uh, then every day she has to go back to school and try to be a normal teenager. But it's not long before those two worlds start colliding and, you know, drama and tension ensue. And, and they must because you've been doing this for 10 years and the stories <laughs> keep coming. So um, actually, I was going to ask you this later, but now since I brought it up now, is it tough coming up with, I mean, it's the same story, the same thread, just 10 years worth of stories and twists and plot and, and all this kind of characterization and all that? Is that's going to be tough? Well, the first the first three books which are all finished, they follow the war. Um, they follow Knowlton's Rangers, uh, who were George Washington's only elite group of soldiers who knew what they were doing. They were sort of his reconnaissance scouts. And uh, most of the soldiers in the Revolutionary War had no training, and they were either young guys or old men. And um, they had a musket or like a you know, like a bird gun, like a fowler gun they would hunt with. It wasn't even military grade. Like it, 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 he did not have qualified troops and they were not equipped. But Knowlton's Rangers actually were. Most of them were veterans of the French and Indian War and they were trained in scouting. And those are the guys I'm writing about. So I was able to follow their movement throughout the summer and fall of 1776 and use that to then plot my outline. So, you know. If there's always another battle or river crossing or something exciting that (laughs) makes it easier to pin out your plot. And then when I moved into the new story arc, which I'm currently in, which is about um, espionage, George Washington spying in New York City, that became a lot harder because there weren't those same, you know, um, markers to plot along Uh, because it's espionage. It's most of it's secret. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I just heard about that, uh, you know, last week when Roger Moore passed away, famously played James Bond, and he gave an interview a few years ago. He's like, how ironic is it that this spy who's supposed to be living this secret life, everyone around the world knows his name and how he likes his martini. What a terrible spy, (laughs) right? Right. 
right, right. And I actually write about Nathan Hale, who's a beloved, but he was a terrible spy. He was one of Knowlton's Rangers. Um, so most Americans know who he is. The yeah, famous... no, it's got some name yeah. brand recognition at least, but maybe not, not <laughs> the best things, right? If you're trying to keep yourself secret. Um, and props, by the way, because you, I mean, Revolutionary War, it's in now. I think Hamilton the musical has made it such a cool thing, but you've been doing this for years now. So way to get right. ahead of the curve on that. Right. I mean, I was one of the people who was waiting for him to release Hamilton for like seven years or whatever while he was working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Most people didn't hear about it till it exploded on Broadway. So, yeah, definitely excited about that. And I, I am excited that how much it's brought um, these people and topics to the forefront of, pe- of conversation. It's just, you know, because it's something I care about. It's fun to see it everywhere on the news and on your Twitter feed. And stuff no, it's like great. That. It's having a moment and you've been mm-hmm. there since the ground floor. So way to get in on it and help perpetuate it too. You've done your part in making this, you know, very cool and, and mainstream. So let's talk about uh, the comic itself and that process. Cause that really interests me. Um, well, first of all, where can people find it? If they, if they, they, they're listening and they're like, Oh, that sounds like a cool story. I want to follow along. Where can they find it? Well, you can read it all online. And my website is thedreamercomic.com. And every Wednesday and every Friday, there's a new page to the story. Uh, so it's totally free to read it there. But um, because the story's been going on so long, a lot of times people like to read books instead because uh, it's, you know, a lot to digest on a, on a web browser. Um, but there are three volumes out. They're just called The Dreamer by IDW Publishing. And y- your favorite bookstore, your favorite comic shop should have no problem ordering it in for you. Or, of course, there's always Amazon. Amazon's great for all things big and small and, and revolutionary <laughs> and modern. Um, all right, so that's how you can do it. Now, you mentioned the webcomics free. So that's my first question is, how do you make money on something like this that you're giving away for free, even if it's one page at a time twice a week? Yeah, that's definitely um, – that's been to build my market base. And I – you know, back when I started this and I was just getting into it, I think that was a concern of mine too. You know, if someone is reading this for free – why do they want to pay for it? And, um, you know, if I could just use Hamilton as example, I, I listened to Hamilton the first time on Spotify and got interrupted three times by commercials. And by the time I made it to the end, I went to iTunes and bought it because I had to have it. And I never wanted a commercial to interrupt me again. You know, I, and that's sort of the same thing is that you, you are building an audience, you're building a market, and then those people turn into your customers. And I was surprised that, you know, for the first year before it was published, as I was giving this thing away for free, the number one question that people would ask me was, where can I buy this in print? And these are the people who are reading it for free. So there's sort of, you know, this desire of I love this thing, I want to own this thing. Um, And it's also a really beautiful book. My publisher IDW has put together, it's just, you know, as comics go, they gave me free reign. Um, So it just is a really lovely print collection with paper quality and things like that, uh, that it just, you know, it's a nice thing to own if it's something that you care about. That's the thing with just anything sort of tactile in general these days, right? You can get everything online or streaming, but there's something cool about holding a vinyl record or having a mm-hmm. book in your hands that I think it's becoming more of a fashionable, chic thing than, than a, a practical thing, which is, which is good. Yeah, and instead of, you know, if I hadn't been publishing it online, then when it had come out in bookstores, 
you would just be completely shooting in the dark. Instead, when it came out in bookstores, I had a very targeted group of people who I could then say, hey, will you will you do me a favor and pre-order this at your comic book shop? And so there was already an army of people who were willing to do that and um, help me. You know, the book has been in print three times now, which it is great, you know, that, you know, people continue to buy it because they continue to discover it as it's evergreen on the internet. You can find it for the first time at any time. You can find it 10 years in now and it's brand new to you, you know? Um, yeah, so that, and, and my publisher understood that because I was talking to two publishers at the same time and, uh, the other one was very skittish about it and they had asked me to pull it from the internet and that didn't quite make sense to me. So when I talked to IDW, they completely saw the sense in that. And I'm glad that they did because it's continued to be a way for me to grow the audience for the last decade. That's great. And I, I saw too, are you still doing your thing with, uh, with, with Patreon? Um, I am. Yes. Yeah. So- and that's another way too, that I bring in revenue and that's a newer thing. It's it's sort of like Kickstarter, but ongoing. And you know, because I have a publisher, I never used Kickstarter because that's more to fund a one-time project. Um, but Patreon is ongoing. So what it is is people can give you a monthly pledge, and it's usually not much. It's like a dollar, or five dollars, or ten dollars. I mean, sometimes I have one woman who gives me forty-five bucks a month and has been doing that for about two years. Like it's wow. incredible. That's four Netflix subscriptions. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I send her free drawing in the mail because I didn't know how to say thank you. Um, but yeah, so but both, most people give a smaller a smaller pledge and then they get a simple reward in exchange for that. And at, for someone like me, it allows me to have a steady income that I can rely on. You know, it fluctuates, of course, but it's fluctuating in the upward direction. So even though some people unsubscribe, more people subscribe than unsubscribe. So it's always growing, which is great, you know, it's, and I'm seeing it work for a lot of people who are in, uh, you know, the same, doing the same kinds of things as me. And I saw you're you're doing something cool where it's like, if you hit certain goals, you'll release pages more frequently or material more frequently. Is that still Mm -hmm. happening? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing is, you know, people get to participate in it. And so there've been different goals that we've hit along the way. We went from one page a week to two pages a week. And, um, a lot of the money goes to paying my colorist. And at one point I brought in a a friend who helps me with layouts just to speed along the process. You know, if I can make this faster, you can read it faster and, uh, everybody wins. Do you know how many Game of Thrones fans wish that George R.R. R. Martin would do something similar? <laughs> like, we'll pay, just go faster, and we'll try and make that happen for you. And that's great for yeah. you being able to kind of get grassroots with the people that you know directly <laughs> are helping or reading and fueling your stuff. So what is the process like? I mean, because you're talking – it's a mixture, and you alluded to this a little bit. There are some real people that you're basing your stories off of. There's also f- completely fictional characters. So when you're – how far ahead do you plot out a storyline? Uh, what hours of the day are you spent researching, drawing, writing? What's a week like in the life of someone like you who's creating this, this comic that just keeps on going and going? Uh, I, the research, a lot of that was done at the beginning because I am a planner. Um, you know, I, the art is the more obvious part of what I do, but I'm also a writer too. And the writer side of me will not allow me to wing it. Uh, I have to know where I'm headed. And I think those are the kinds of stories that I love the stories that had the ending in mind the whole time. So by the time the 
the viewer or the reader arrives at that point, it's just so satisfying because everything comes together in a way that makes sense. And uh, so for me, I had the ending planned before I started the first page. And so because of that, there are scenes that I had written like um, the end of the last issue that went up last month. The first draft, I pulled it out and I posted it on Patreon for them to laugh at, but it predated the first published page. So it was like May, I think, of 2007 when I had done the first draft of that scene. Um, so yeah, at the beginning I was doing, like I took a lot of trips to Colonial Williamsburg and Boston and Connecticut and uh, did just a heck of a lot of research on the front end. And that never ends. You know, you're always finding new things or... Um, or I'm meeting new people through this. You know, it, before when I when I started my research, I didn't have access to historians and biographers and descendants and things like that. You know, it's only through having done this publicly that it attracts those kind of people who are all interested in your subject matter. We all kind of start to find each other. And then that has opened up so many more doors to people who are actually trained historians or biographers of the people I'm writing about. And all of a sudden I've got this guy on my list of someone I can call when I reach a point in my research that I don't understand what I'm finding. How do I interpret this? Or what am I missing? Or am I doing this right? Like I actually have people who I can run things by now, which is not something I had 10 years ago. It's nice uh, to have some doors open, isn't it? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's, yeah, it's, it makes all the difference because I, I really care about the people that I'm writing about. Um, and as a fiction writer, there is the, the, you know, it's a fun thing to be able to take facts and then use them as a springboard for a story. Um, but I never, I never want to be untrue to who I think that historical person was. So even though there's room for imagination, I always try to keep rooted in truth uh, best I can. So yeah, that that's an ongoing process. But so much of that happened at the beginning. And so these days it's more, um, I will write out an entire chapter a time at a time, which is like one comic book issue. It's worth of content. And I do that first. So maybe I'll spend a whole week at a coffee shop, just writing the next issue. And then after that, I come into my office and we'll spend the next month or the next six weeks drawing it. So I just kind of cycle through it uh, in, in that order. That sounds way neater than it actually is. I'm not that organized of a person, but generally that's how it plays out. Yeah. It sounds very compartmentalized and, and, and you have to put in your chiropractic time to get those wrists healed. But <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. yes. Yeah. But my writing weeks always are good for my body to take a break. That's true. <laughs> uh, what's it? I mean, what does it look like your office look like? Cause obviously I think when people think of comic book creators, they're thinking of, you know, the guys who made Superman in the 30s, and it's just a giant table in an old, like, abandoned Brooklyn <laughs> warehouse with pencils and a giant piece right. of paper. But what's that like now? Does technology change? How much are you still doing by hand? What's that like? Um, no trees have been hurt in the making of this comic since about 2012. Uh, I do everything digitally. I draw on a Cintiq monitor. I have a 22-inch touch, uh, touch screen Cintiq monitor, so I can actually just swivel my uh, document as if it's a piece of paper that I'm turning um, with my fingers, which is awesome, or just pinch the screen and zoom in and out like an iPad. Uh, so that has just been an enormous time saver for me when I made that jump to working completely digitally. Um, and I do have my monitors. It's uh, mounted on a mechanical arm so I can switch between standing and sitting to kind of 
that's a little more ergonomic too. But no, no dark, danky, dank, scary warehouses here. Nobody's chaining my, me to my desk. I take. <laughs> I, I live in San Diego. I can look to the left and I'm actually staring at the ocean. Well, if it wasn't so gray today, because I know what I'm looking at, I can actually see the ocean right now. Oh, so. it's actually, I mean, those, those <laughs> listening that know me, I just moved back from San Diego last year. It pains my heart to know it's not sunny there right now. It's gray May, June gloom. Like most of May was pretty all right. Like the mornings were overcast, but then it would clear up. But I think we finally hit that couple week stretch where it's just gray now it was actually raining yesterday that marine layer get out of there let the people uh, get back (laughs) to enjoying their perfectly uh climated life everyone else is talking about summer and i don't know what that is yet oh it's a shame well i'll go enjoy some sunshine for you here on the east coast because here in new york today it's just it's a san diego like day so oh enjoy that enjoy that for you So is is the dream eventually to get this adapted to TV or to movies or anything? Or is, is, is the comic book uh, industry sort of enough to keep you satiated and doing what you do with the dreamer? Oh, I'll never be satisfied, as they say in Hamilton. Uh, I That has definitely been a dream of mine, for sure. Uh, but those things are just knowing people who have been through that process um, or have started it but haven't finished it. It's just so much is out of your control. Um, when I'm, when I'm here, I can make, I can sit down and work and produce something and it's done, but that's a whole other thing where you just can't in the same way, (laughs) turn out a TV series all by on your own, you know, determination. Um, it's something that definitely people have approached me about, but so far nothing has been the right, uh, the right fit for me in the story. So if it ever happens, I would love it for sure. I used to think I wanted to do like the the movie, you know, like the the period costumes and the war effects and the sweeping, you know, orchestra behind them. Um, I think, you know, the epicness that you can't get in a comic book. I think I would love to see this that side of the story played out on the big screen. But right now it just seems to be the like golden age of television uh, where like the most interesting stories and acting and directing is all happening on television, not in uh not in the movie theater. So I'm definitely serialized stuff. Yeah. You throw out a 10 episode Netflix season and you can do season after season and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at right now for sure. So you say it's like things haven't been a right fit. So what, if, if I were a Hollywood person coming to you tomorrow, what would that perfect fit be? What do you think? (laughs) Or do you not know? Are you still kind of torn between movies and TV or, or is it, is it, do they want to change characters? Do they want to change plot points? Like what, what are some of the hangups that you've come across? Well, the hangups have been people who either admittedly don't have the budget or have tried to take advantage of me. And luckily I have an agent who's helped me navigate that. Um, or people who have taken it and then it's just sat on their shelf for two years, but I couldn't do anything else with it because they had the rights for that duration of time until it expired. So it's just kind of been like nothing has been legit enough because once on my end, once I sell it, that's it, it's done. Um, so I don't want to just give it to someone just to check that off the list and make a couple thousand dollars. Like I want to see it done well or not at all. So that legitimate offer hasn't come in yet. It's your baby. You've been, you know, got this from scratch and 10 years of, of your work and literally sacrificing parts of your body and, and <laughs> for it. So yeah, you don't want to just give it away and have just to say you're on TV. I can, right. I can understand that. So I respect that. Yeah. I think no TV is better than bad TV. 
And ain't that the truth? Uh, and there's plenty of bad TV out there, so it's, it's good to avoid those pitfalls and those traps. Now you you came, you didn't start this like right out of college. You actually did some corporate design work before you got into the comic life, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I did. Well, um, I, I worked for an illustration company. I I lived in Columbus, Ohio, until a few years ago, um, and uh, it was a company in Columbus, and uh, we. Did a lot of commercial illustration, like ice cream package design and cereal boxes and Hot Wheels cars and Barbie and uh, licensed characters, kids books like uh, Barney and Clifford and SpongeBob and things like that. There was one that I always hated. Oh, the backyard again. That was the worst. <laughs> I haven't heard that just, name in a while. We had to listen to the music on a loop and it would just drive you utterly insane. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of that kind of work and that job was fantastic because I, he taught like the guy who ran the company, Jim Theodore, who's an incredible illustrator. Um, he taught me so much about, um, creating art in the commercial aspect, which is much different than in the fine art aspect. And so the whole notion of waiting to be inspired is it does not exist when you work a nine to five job. You have to learn how to sit down and then produce on demand. And I think that was one of the greatest things that I learned from him was an ability to just treat my art like a job and not like a precious little eggshell anymore. Um, And that's like allowed me to continue to work even when I'm you know, 10, 10 years, so much happens. Uh, you're not the same person you were when you started it, but it's enabled me to continue to persist because I know how to sit down and get, get my job done for the day. And I think that's something a lot of artists struggle with, which is motivation and inspiration and all of those kinds of questions. And I learned how to be very mechanical about it. And, um, maybe that sounds less shiny, but it's far more practical and it's done me a great service. Everyone talks about that, even working from home in a typical corporate job. How do I get the inspiration to actually work instead of just put on Netflix or go for a walk yeah. around the block? And when you're in an industry like yours, very creative, yeah, you, you don't have business hours. So if you don't have no. that structure, it might not be the <laughs> Ernest Hemingway romantic, I just sit at a bar all day and, and when I write when I write. But you got to get shit done. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, people, when people say that to me, I just kind of chuckle because my problem is treating my home like home because it always feels like I'm at work. So I, I fall into the opposite camp with it, you know, because my office is here and my windows are left open with my file up. I do that on purpose actually to cut down resistance the way, like if you want to be really great at working out, I've heard like leave your, you know, have your exercise stuff so that you you could just get right to it. You know, everything's out. You don't have to get it out of the closet every day or whatever, you know, have your stuff ready to go to the gym and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like get rid of the resistance, make it routine. I do that with my work. So I just always have my file up and open on my computer. So at any time I could just come and sit down and work for 10 minutes if I needed to. Um, yeah, it's just little things like that that will shave, like shave time off or increase your productivity and things like that. But then it makes it bad because it's like, you know, maybe you should take care of yourself and cook yourself a healthy dinner tonight. Right, yeah, or just unplug like, for a little bit. Just right. get, get mentally clear the cachet or something. Yeah, but, and, <sighs> and when when I do that, I like I'm I'm learning how to listen to my body more. I I think because for me, so much of it is a mind game. You know, the mind is willing, but realizing like 
oh, it's actually not always willing. You know, there become points <laughs> where I'm just sitting here and I'm on Facebook or I am just surfing the internet. Like I went to look for a re reference photo or something. And all of a sudden now it's like 10 minutes later and I'm, who knows where you go on the internet, you know? I'm learning to recognize that as my my mind saying, hey, Laura, it's time to take a break. And if I'll get up and go do something else even for five or 10 minutes, I'll sit back down and be way more productive. So I'm trying to become, like increase my awareness in order to create, like increase my productivity and learning that um, rests are good for you. And no one knows you better than you. So you got to learn how <laughs> to read what the tea leaves are telling you. Yeah, it's true. And nobody's here to tell me to take a break, right? Right, because, yeah, you're on your own. But at, le at yeah. least your, your <laughs> previous corporate work has instilled a little bit of that in you. But now you're figuring it all out for yourself. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a tough road to travel. <laughs> um, do you ever wish, and we'll get to our last couple of segments here, but I guess last question. Do you ever wish, of our main segment, last question, do you ever wish that you worked in a different era, that you did go somewhere, that you, you didn't work at home, that it wasn't as easy to do everything so digitally and be so connected and plugged in? Or do you love doing what you do now in 2017 and can't imagine any other time? Well, you know, as a woman and a student of history, um, I, well, 2017 itself has been a pretty crappy year, but in, in general, <laughs> I would rather be alive now than in the past, um, you know, even in the fifties and sixties, even in the seventies and eighties, like just what I'm able to do as a woman has changed so much in such a short amount of time. And, you know, within the comic book industry, there's still so much sexism mm -hmm. and sexual abuse and, you know, I just terrible things going on in like people in companies and things like this, the like whole convention industry to be a woman at a convention, um, just a lot of shady things go on and, uh, yeah, a lot of women like get burnt out, um, <clears throat> pretty quickly and which is sad because they get into it for the, the love of it. You know, they love comics, they love storytelling and then just the, the dark side, I guess, of the industry, uh, burns through them. And so that's really unfortunate. So in some way I feel very protected from that, the way that I work, because I don't actually work in a company or a, you know, in an office or something like that. Um, I do do conventions a lot, but, uh, kind of on my own terms, I'm never there as a representative for, um, someone else and I can't get out or something like that. Uh, I mean, intentionally vague because I don't want to, if you want to look into what's going in women in comics, there is, there's a whole, you just get on the internet, you can find people's stories and it's unfortunate. So I think for me, I feel a bit protected and, grateful, but also saddened, you know, that other women have to go through those kinds of things. Um, but grateful that it hasn't been my personal experience. So the, the way that I work, it's like I get to connect with people all over the world and, um, find my fans that way, which has just been a great joy that did not exist probably 15 years ago. That just wasn't even a thing. And I hear stories about, um, the comic book industry in the eighties, you know, there would be like <laughs> three women at a convention <laughs> and then they would just all be attacked. Um, you know, it's just, it did not sound fun. A lot of people I know who are older that their wives just didn't even want to come to conventions because it was just, just such a, uh, an environment that they didn't want to be in. So I feel really grateful that that's, um, not been my experience. So for me, it's kind of the perfect storm of, uh, a great time to be alive and be doing, uh, what I want to be doing. I mean, I, I definitely miss that creative environment, you know, like to have other people to 
bounce ideas off of the way that I did when I worked at the illustration studio. You could just walk downstairs and ask a coworker, Hey, what do you think? And then your, your mind, your two minds together or your four minds together comes up with a much better solution. So I try to tap into that just through my networks on my own, you know, phone a friend or that kind of thing. And, um, communities like Patreon actually have been like a synthetic, uh, like a synthetic community, I guess, you know, it's you, I can get feedback there and I can get encouragement there and interaction and stuff there. So I guess kind of creating those things on my own, um, not the same as somebody to go grab lunch with, but definitely better than nothing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do that. You're trying to find ways even to just keep friendships alive. You're mm -hmm. G-chatting now instead of phone calling, yeah. but yep. you do what you can to keep the good parts of back in the day and leave all the, the crappy parts behind and just try and adapt it to, to now. And I think you're doing a great job also as sort of a – you're a beacon. You're showing the way for maybe other women that want to do this industry but have heard the horror stories of the past. You've shown a proven way to make it work. So I think it's very inspirational you doing what you do. So keep oh, it up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, I had said last question before, but that was a lie. Uh, for any people <laughs> who are big uh, th fans of The Dreamer, any, uh, any teases you can offer, any scoops on what may be coming along plot-wise uh, shortly in the, in the coming weeks or months? Oh. Um, okay. I'll, I'll give one. And If you're a fan of The Dreamer, um, the bad guys definitely close in next issue. So B's kind of been doing her spy thing and she's kind of had space, but um, the walls get tighter next issue. So Ooh, stay tuned. Sounds <laughs> ominous. Stay tuned indeed. All right. Well, uh, we do end with our two standard segments with every guest. Uh, one is the fun five, which are five quick, fun, silly questions designed for you and you alone. But before we get to that, Laura, I always offer my guests the chance to turn the tables and ask me anything. Now, you and I have only known each other for about 30 minutes, uh, but if there's anything you'd like to ask me, now's your chance to fire away. <laughs> okay, I've got one for you. Oh, okay. Um, I've been out of the podcasting game for a while, but I'm actually planning to start a new one soon. So what advice would you give? Like, What's something that you did well when you launched your show, and what's something you wish you'd known? Uh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess technologically, I, I thought I did my research at the beginning, and I really didn't. Uh, so when <laughs> I go back now and listen to my first couple episodes, the audio sounds terrible, and the guest is way louder than me, or you can barely understand what they're saying. Um, so, I, I mean, it's been a couple of years since your last podcast ended, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so I guess just, yeah, bone up on what the new technology is. Uh, the recording stuff, the software, is, I, I'm sure, has advanced since then, uh, and, and microphones and all that kind of stuff. So just know that, because as you know, podcasting is all about how it sounds, and if it sounds yeah. terrible, someone's going to dip out in 30 seconds. And like gone are the days of ham radio where you could just call up on your headphone mic and record and people would listen. I mean, it's everyone's show sounds so good right now. Yeah. And so it's polished. crazy. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my big thing that I wish I did uh, back then was just, I thought I knew what I was doing, but as is often the case, you don't even have half a clue when you look back in retrospect. <laughs> Isn't that so true? yeah, good luck getting it back off the ground though. But since you've done it before, it's already, you have a building block to jump off of. So I think you're way ahead of the game for most people. All right. Well, thanks. <laughs> and good, good, good luck on whatever the show ends up being. Um, all right. Time now for the fun five. As I said, they're quick. They're fun. They're designed for you and you alone. Question number one, 
of all the battles in the Revolutionary War, which one's your favorite? Mm, I I would have to say Bunker Hill. It's uh, it's not the first battle, but it's the it's a it's an American loss, but it really showed that the Americans had a fight against the British. Oh, um, to come back to my hero, Thomas Knowlton, he was down at the base of the hill at this gap, uh, like this fence that went parallel from hill over to the or perpendicular from the hill over to the river. And that's where most of the action was coming that day. And his men who were, again, French and Indian War veterans or just amateurs, they were able to repel the most powerful army in the world four times um, before they finally ran out of ammunition. And then those guys cover the retreat for the whole rest of the uh, the Americans who were at the top of the hill. Thomas Knowlton is a guy and uh, General Stark, they, Captain Stark, they all, they hold the ground and allow the Americans to retreat. And I mean, the British suffer over a thousand casualties. Like it's just, it's horrifying. Um, but in terms of just an interesting moment in history that, you know, they are able to take a stand. This is before George Washington is even there. He comes shortly thereafter after Congress gives him his appointment. Um, yeah, it's just a very fascinating moment that that then kicks something off that lasts for seven more years, which is wild. Uh, it's just a very long war that I don't think people quite realize that. And uh, it's a very desperate, bleak war. And then there are, there are moments like that throughout it where um, there are big moments that are able to buy enough momentum to drag this thing out longer. And Bunker Hill was one of those moments. But, you know... Uh, my interest in the Revolutionary War, so much of it is at the advent. And so I think, you know, some of my favorite characters are there. Thomas Knowlton is there and Dr. Joseph Warren is there. That's actually where he dies. Um, so, yeah, this is this early catalyst thing where these guys had been just talking about ideas and protesting. And then all of a sudden it becomes a real. It's kind of a strange thing. Yeah, to go from idea to happening and then seven yeah. years and a whole literally changing the world's worth of effect. <laughs> Uh, it's crazy stuff. Um, all right, Bunker Hill for question number one. Uh, for the record, I'm a Saratoga guy. I love the turning point uh, type battle, oh. so that's, that's my, my jam. But yeah. we're on to question number two. So if you had a time machine, and I could take you back to, I don't know, 1774 or 75, just something in that era, who's the first person you'd want to meet? <laughs> um, okay, so right now I'm working on a book about Thomas Knowlton's 15-year-old son. So I would actually want to meet Frederick Knowlton because I want to pick his brain so primary I can write source. about him well. Yeah, you don't get more primary than the kid himself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my answer today. All right, we'll ask you again when you come on the show down the road, see if it changes. <laughs> see, uh, but right now, yeah, Freddie Knowlton. Uh, question number three, your uh, beloved Pittsburgh Penguins are in the Stanley Cup Finals right now, and at the Yay. time of this recording, up one game to nothing. Who's your favorite Penguin of all time? Um, of all time? Mm-hmm. See, I'm a very, maybe I'm a very fluid person. I mean, right now, obviously, I love Crosby, and I love Malkin. When I was at the Penguins game, we were down on the ice before um, uh, the like the pregame when they're warming up, and I was like taking pictures and Instagram and like all excited, and Malkin saw me taking pictures, and I clearly wasn't paying enough attention to him because he skated up and slapped the glass with his stick. And I, there, the photo I have of him is him glaring at me, and there's this big snow swatch down the glass uh, glaring at me. And I just love that he punked me. And I put my camera away after that and then just enjoyed the, <laughs> the fun. 
<laughs> so we'll go with Evgeny Malkin for, for now, for this for question. Now. Uh, question number four, uh, you're also a big Star Wars fan, if my research is correct. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So give me your theory how, if at all, are Luke and Ray related? Oh, that's a good one. Mm. I think she's got to be in the family somehow. I, I'm a big Mara Jade fan, but they're just, they're rewriting everything. So I just don't know what to believe. Like, I would love it if she was Luke's daughter. I think that would be really cool. Um, and, you know, her connection with Han and Leia is, obviously, there was a lot there um, that felt like more than just somebody I bumped into in outer space. Uh, <laughs> and in the same way where Luke and Leia get connected and it feels like an accident, and then as the series progresses, you find out that it's not. It's the Force bringing people together. Um, that's that's my hope. We'll see if she's she's... A Skywalker. But... We will find out in December. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then last question. We talked about how you're out in San Diego. I was just there. Uh, I do miss the weather and a lot of the food. So I have to ask, what's your favorite San Diego restaurant? Mm. Well, the one I'm at the most is Pizza Port uh, because it's at the bottom of the hill and we can walk there. So we're actually headed there tonight for Wing Wednesday. Oh, that's uh, fun. And I like like the hole in the wall flavor of it. Um, you know, it's just like a bunch of locals and everybody's hair is sandy and wet because they've been surfing all day and they're pinball machines and you just get a pitcher of beer and hang out with your friends and um this is like is very laid back and chill. So I like the I like the hang. But we we go down to Tacos El Gordo a bit, quite a bit, for sure. That's good too. Uh, I miss uh, Carnita Snack Shack so much. If you want to uh, just like mail me anything from them, I'm, I'm a hot. It closed. Take it. Did they? Yes. All the locations. Oh, okay. So I only know the one in Del Mar. Where are the other ones? Oh yeah. So the one that I knew was in North Park, and then they have one in uh, Embarcadero. I think North Park one is better. Okay. Um, but all right. I'll as long as, the, as long as he was still alive. so bummed, we drove there and it was closed, and he was ready to cry. Oh. All right. Well, I'll that, surprise that, him. That, that does suck, but I'm glad that if you know if I do get to go back and visit, there's at least one location still open for me to go get my heart attack sandwich. <laughs> um, all right, Laura Innes, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, I know you're busy creating this world and keeping it going and, and interacting with your fans, so I appreciate it. Let people know again where they can find your work, where they can find you on social media, and really just plug anything you feel like plugging. Sure. Um, the Dreamers website is thedreamercomic.com. And uh, my personal website is my name. It's L-O-R-A-I-N-N-E-S.com. And uh, there's a lot more of my work there than, um, than you can find on the Dreamer comic, which is primarily just the comic book. And then you can find me on Twitter. I'm Laura Innes. On Instagram, I'm laura.innes.art. Um, you can follow me there. And there are links to Patreon and both both of my websites, you could find me from there. So, yeah, I'm all over the place and I'm easy to find. <laughs> awesome. Which, yeah, it's 2017. You have to be easy to find or else you're just not going to make it. All right, Laura, thanks so much again. I'm going to wrap up now, but stay on the line and you and I will chat after. 
All right. Thank you. All right. And you guys, you can check me out. Uh, you should know by now, but I'm Mike Janella everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, all those fun things. You can also visit MikeJanella.com where I'll have links to all of Laura's stuff where you can find her and where you can find all previous episodes of the show plus all the info on the great outro music that you're hearing right now. But thanks one more time to Laura Innes for joining us this week. Check out The Dreamer. Check her out on Patreon. And make sure to check me out again next week. Thanks so much for listening. I'll try and do better next time. See ya!